Hi, I'm Dr Suzanne Reich, criminologist at the University of Southern Queensland. You are listening to I Am Not My Crime, a podcast featuring courageous people telling you the story about the crimes they have committed and their journey to redemption. I Am Not My Crime has been produced to help you understand that for many people it is their circumstances that led them down the path to offending behaviour and that what somebody has done in the past is not an indication of who they are today. In this episode, Kate recounts how her escalating alcohol addiction led to the worst possible outcome. I'd had too much to drink and unfortunately I had this horrendous car crash which I caused, resulting in the death of the other driver. You'll hear how the tragic event became the catalyst for Kate's own recovery and her pursuit in life to make good by helping others. It was a bit of a fight to get an employer to give me a go, but I'm now working as a teacher. And as you listen to Kate's story, ask yourself this. Would you hire someone who'd done time for a crime? Give people a chance to redeem themselves because there are a lot of worthy people out there that have just been on the wrong side of an event for whatever reason but that shouldn't define who they are. This is really your, the redemption story of how your life has changed since um, that fateful night that you were involved in a crime. Um, so maybe if we start there and then we can rewind the clock a little bit and see what was happening before, but then what's happened since then so we can really hear about the, the change that's happened in your life. So can you tell us about what happened on that night? Thanks, Suze. It was actually during the day. Um, I realised that I needed some time away to try and sort my life out. And I was actually on the road to try and book a holiday to get away from it all. And I'd had too much to drink prior to that. And unfortunately, I had this horrendous car crash, which I caused, resulting in the death of the other driver and severely injuring his passenger. Okay. And you were drinking that morning before, or was this from the night before? No, things had got so bad that I was drinking that morning before the accident. And were there injuries to yourself or was it mainly the other passengers? I had a lot of injuries. Um, I had a lot of injuries, Suze. I broke my back in three places. I broke both my legs, perforated spleen, busted ribs. So I had a lot of injuries to overcome as well. What actually happened to cause the accident? Do you remember? I don't remember any of it. I've tried for years and years and and through different psychology appointments and all I tried to remember to try and recall but it's all just a blank. Did did you realise what had happened to the other people in the other car at that point? At that point I didn't. It wasn't until several days later when I regained consciousness in hospital that I was made aware of what had happened. Who was it that told you? Um, I think it was a social worker in the hospital came around to see me. Do you remember that moment, what that was like, hearing that news? I was absolutely horrified. Um, I couldn't believe it. Like, I, I had this general feeling that people were trying to keep information from me because I had a business myself that I had been inquiring about. I'd been asking questions about all this stuff and I just I wasn't getting the answers that satisfied me. So I did have a feeling that there was something else going on, mm-hmm. but just what I didn't know. Mm-hmm. That must have been quite confronting to be having to recover from all of those injuries and then be presented with that news. What what sort of went through your head at that point? Suze, it was it was really horrible because I was actually lying flat 
in bed the whole time. I was on severe restrictions for my back movement because of my broken back. So I couldn't move, I couldn't roll, I couldn't I couldn't do anything. So it was like there was no hiding. It was just laying on my back, um, looking at the roof and just thinking about all these things and, and try and comprehend what had happened and still try and put together pieces because I still wasn't satisfied that I was getting all the story about everything that had happened. Mm-hmm. So you mentioned that before, like one of the things that you were thinking about was your business and your life that you know what's happening with that before you knew what had happened can you tell us a little bit about life before the accident life immediately before the accident was had been fairly hard I was running a business in a small country town I was the sole operator I needed I felt as though I needed to do it all myself so I guess I was probably a little bit of a control freak wanting to do it all, thinking I had to do it all. And I didn't want to say that I needed help, but I obviously did. Um, Not long before the accident, my dad had had a stroke and that had hit me fairly severely. Mm. Um, After my mum passed away, dad had actually said to me that he didn't, want me to ever let him live in a nursing home and after this stroke it became apparent that if it wasn't going to be for good it was still going to be for a significant amount of time initially so those things and trying to be the good daughter and doing everything right it it really played on me so yeah alcohol was my way out to to try and ease all these conflicting things going on in my head and yeah that's where I ended up where I did. So had alcohol been an issue for you um, previously at any time in life like an ongoing issue or was it something that you recently turned to? It had been just I'd been married to a to a man that initially my family didn't accept um, but then they realised that um, if they were going to have a daughter, they need to accept him as well. Okay. So, um, so I married him, and within about twelve months of be- being married, I realised that it wasn't the right thing to do. And being um, from a country family, that there'd been no divorces on either side of the family for however many generations beforehand I felt that I was an absolute failure and all of those things it was like alcohol was what I turned to after work to just ease the pain to to just try and relax me and unfortunately it just became a habit and it just grew and and progressed from there into the dangerous levels that preceded the accident and that was a daily thing or would you call yourself a binge drinker at different Um, times it wasn't daily initially um it did progress to daily I went for times when I realized that my drinking was out of control and I could stop for you know months at a time but then I just started again and thought I'd be okay but I wasn't. I soon relapsed back to where I was. Mm-hmm. Wow, quite a story. But like not just at the time of leading up to um, that particular day, but it it goes back a little bit further, really, to quite a few instances of trauma um, mm. in your life. That sounds like it's had an accumulated sort of effect over time. Um, after we'll go back to, I suppose, in the hospital, sort of towards the end of the hospital stay and, and getting out of hospital, um, did you return back to that community that you were living in? Uh, yes, I did. I had a friend at the time that was able to take me back to their home and I stayed there. I was very immobile then still. I had a back brace on. 
um, which I had to wear 23 and a half hours a day. Um, I barely showed my face apart from going to visit family at different times. Why's that? Shame. Shame. What kind of reception did you have from people in the town? Um, Any time that I saw anyone, they were actually quite warm and welcoming and said, you know, good to see you about and stuff like that. But I was always concerned about what they were actually saying behind my back. Mm. Um, yeah. In our earlier conversation, you'd said to me that you didn't realise that you you were going to be charged with an offence straight away. It wasn't until mm. later. So how long after you'd come out of hospital did you receive that news? It was probably about six weeks after I came out of hospital. I was actually admitted. I was actually in um, another hospital getting some antibiotics for a leg infection that I had um, as related a of, as a yeah. result of the accident. Okay. Yeah. Um, and I was in hospital there and um, that's when I got the news that, you know, charges were going to be laid and that I would have to go to the police station. And Who was it that told you that at hospital? Uh, my sister actually gave me the news. Oh, so she was already informed and mm. had to pick a time to tell you. Mm. What was that like? Just devastating. Just like, yeah, what What more? Yeah. What more? Um, yeah. And so what was the course of events then? Obviously there was a, a trial or... Yeah, um, that came quite a while afterwards. Um, It was at that point in time that I sought help at a rehabilitation place. And it was whilst I was there that the case was heard for the first time in in the actual district court. And then they remanded me in custody, awaiting the trial. Okay, and so how long then until the trial... Um, the trial didn't end up then being for about six months, but um, I was only in custody for about six weeks at that time. What was that like for you? It was really scary, Suze. The, the first time I went there, they actually put me in the hospital of the jail because of my injuries and my ongoing problems with my legs. And it was there that I met someone who was also in the hospital. And I can just remember the following morning, all these girls were walking down from one bay down to the medical centre to get their medications. And this other girl that was in hospital was hanging over the veranda balcony and talking to all these people. And they're all asking about we're such and such a person or do you know what happened to such and such and that's when I realized that all these people in here were like family to each other and I was the new kid on the block Mm -hmm. they all knew each other they all knew of each other and and I just felt wow I don't know how I'm going to survive in here and you'd never been inside a prison, never even known anyone that's been to prison, so completely no. foreign. Completely foreign. To... Completely foreign and scary as. So when you went back to trial, it, they found you guilty of dangerous driving causing death. Yes. And so the outcome of that was a prison sentence. Was a prison sentence, yeah. So that was remand that you were in for those six weeks mm. and then next step was actual prison Mm. tell us about that experience that's one experience that when you're growing up and you think about all your outcomes in life it's certainly one that I didn't expect that would ever be part of my life story Mm. but it was and so I realized then that I was going to be in there for at least slightly more than three years so I had to make the most of it I 
I told myself that I was going to survive it and I was going to come out and I was going to see my dad and I so much wanted my grandparents to be alive when I still came out. Mm. Uh, They were the things that really kept me going most of the time when I was in there. My phone calls to family, they kept me going. What it was like, it was scary. Um, I tried to isolate myself from the other girls as much as I could because I thought that was the safest option. And then I found that I I really involved myself with my work. Um, I worked in uh, telemarketing and then at a later time I was able to be involved in the dairy and that was... Um, I felt a real reward for me because I was at least able to get outside, um, big paddocks, cows, and it was a life that I could really relate to finally. Um, and I'm just really interested, Kate, about the family dynamic. And you're saying that, you know, that's what really kept you going, just to serve your sentence and get out because you wanted to see them again. So did they come and visit you while you were serving your sentence in prison? And obviously they were taking phone calls, but how did they adapt to the prison life, having somebody, a loved one, in prison? I don't think they adapted very well, Suze. My dad wasn't able to visit me at all because of his own incapacity. My grandparents um, didn't visit me at all and I've got three siblings and they all visited me either once or maybe twice in that whole time. And I think it was the shock of the whole system and even them having to go through the security to get through visits and stuff like that. I just don't think they wanted to be part of that either. So, yeah, it was mainly the phone calls that kept me going. Yeah, yeah. And do you think those limited visits were because um, they were found that intimidating, that process, or was it more practical reasons because it was so far to travel or, you know, it was quite confronting um, being in that environment or maybe fear of other inmates in the visits room? Or I think it was a combination of all those things. Yeah. Like just a combination, like it was so foreign, this idea of visiting your sister in jail, that was just foreign to, to our family. Yeah, sure. Um, and, it, yeah, but, yeah, very intimidating. And, and, of course, the distance came into play as well. Yeah. And that is um, quite a, a practical problem that a lot of people experience um, who have loved ones in prison but are unable to get there to visit, and it makes that prison time quite a lonely isolated experience especially I would guess as you were saying you were isolating yourself from the other girls Mm. to just get on with it and finish Mm. your sentence so I'm just interested then if that was the approach that you took to serving a sentence how did you spend your time? I embarked on some education courses and it was fairly difficult but the initially I started a law degree and that took a lot of energy to to get approval within the ranks of the prison to actually do that Um, and I was able to get uh, lecturers at that time was um, sending me CD copies of of the lectures because there was no internet allowed for me and I had no internet access for assignments or anything so everything was very basic done in almost the dark ages Mm. as we see it now so yeah it was education so it was law while I was in there and it was afterwards that it you know I I'd really found a, a love of of studying again and after I got out actually I pursued more learning so but it was the, the study that really kept me going and kept me isolated. It was always an excuse that, you know, I didn't have to, you know, do other things that they were doing. So did you finish that law study while you are in there or a component um, of it? 
by the time I was released, I had finished enough to be awarded a graduate diploma in oh. legal studies and I finished it at that level. I By then I'd chosen that law wasn't for me and I wanted to get into something more people-based. Sure. And it's, I looked at psychology then. Did you think that helped you for your release or did it maybe just help you get through that time? <laughs> it helped me get through the time. I think it helped me realise that I could take new things on board and I could adapt and all of those little skills that it had proven that I did still have and that they were still able to shine, you know, despite the adversity of being in there, um, I could take something worthwhile out. Mm. And that's what I was um, focused on doing. Like, I, I didn't want it just to be a complete waste of time being in there. I can't help but think what you were saying before about, you know, like your family and your family life, and it sounds like you've come from... Um, quite a nice family Mm. Um, and saying how you felt like you know you were a failure having this broken marriage and how that must have felt even more so than ending up in prison but it sounds like there was a bit of a turnaround from when you arrived in prison and when you left prison in terms of your outlook like when you got there did you just think my life's over yeah and I then certainly did. What were you thinking at the other end of that when you were walking back out the gates? Was that still your thought or were you a lot more positive about what was to come? I was a lot more positive about what was to come. I was scared. I was cautious. I knew I was going to be confronted with a lot more obstacles. They would have just been different ones to what I'd faced before. But I also knew that I had tools in my toolkit that I didn't have before and one of them was that I'd learnt to actually talk to people. Mm. Prior to going in I was this stoic country girl that could do it all herself, didn't need anyone to help, fit, brave, like your typical farmer nowadays that don't want to put their hand up for help. Well, I was now someone that realised that it wasn't a sign of weakness. Mm. It was actually a sign of strength Mm. in some regards, of being able to realise that, yeah, you did need help and there was no shame in putting your hand up and saying, hey, I need some help. That's that's an incredible realisation to come to, I think, because that is very characteristic of our... Australian country people mm. that sort of inner strength and mm. you know we live in a rugged country yeah. and we've had to embrace what's thrown at us and crack on mm. um, and be able to manage those things you know and I think that that's very much part of the Australian she'll be right um, sort of attitude yeah. um, so I'm interested now to hear about life since I was released mm-hmm. I was on parole for almost three years. Uh, During that time, um, initially they kept a fairly close eye on me, um, but then they realised that, you know, I had uh, sorted out a lot of things and I wasn't kept such a... under their scrutiny as much. Coming out, I'd say that it was like, in my own mind, I'd chosen that was then and this is now and in a lot of respects I have shut off that past life in regard to I decided that I didn't want to go back into my old work career Mm -hmm. Um, I was in a position where I could have um, even after some some more legal proceedings I was still placed in a position where I could resume my former career but I chose not to because I wanted to leave that as part of the past. To a certain extent, I also left my horses behind. And it was only several years into into my post-release that I actually got my horses back, really got involved with my horses again. 
and that really assisted me to because I became closer to some of my old friends and that and and they gave me the encouragement to say, hey, it could have happened to any of us. We're not holding it against you. It's okay. You can show your face. They all thought I was crazy not wanting to, to go around the events where I used to go. But I felt the shame and I felt that I couldn't until I got this encouragement, which took several years. What did that encouragement do for you? I thought they were just trying to be nice to start with and, and I sort of questioned why I had a lot of questioning because I had a lot of self-doubt still but you know it it finally made me realize that these were fair income people and they truly did mean they, they were sorry that they hadn't come and visited me they'd spoken about visiting me inside but they always you know, too busy or or didn't do it, but they didn't realise until after my release how important it would have been for Mm. me to have seen them. But, yeah, just getting involved again with the rural lifestyle and the horses and that that I knew and the people, it really helped, you know, open the world back up to me. Mm. Did you feel angry listening to them say, well, we were too busy to visit you or...? I was angry. I... It it sort of then still went back into this thing of I'm not worth it and I still had a lot of this self-doubt that, that I wasn't worth it for anybody. So, yeah, it, it made me angry, but I could sort of see their point. Um, I could understand that for all these people as well, like jail was something that, you know, it wasn't part of their landscape. Mm. So it was all fairly scary for them as mm. well. I find it really interesting that some of those people that you were saying could recognise it could have been any one of us um, that this happened to and obviously that helped them to exercise some empathy towards you and some grace in letting you back in to the community, letting you back into the fold, would you say? That's a funny, well, it's a comment that, when they when they said that I would get really really angry because to me it was like it should never have happened none of you should have ever been in that position because none of you should have ever got behind the wheel after you'd been drinking and I was it just angered me so much to hear people say that it was as though you know they they didn't see my crime where I saw it and and they thought, you know, they thought that, you know, it could have happened to them and um, it was just a more bad luck than anything else mm. and that really angered me. Mm. Okay. Can you understand why it made you feel angry? Like I it- guess it made me angry because it is so part of so many people in the country life is drinking and driving and they just think that it's bad luck yep. if you get caught. Yeah, you were the unlucky one that and day. And I was the we unlucky, yeah. because yeah, we all do it. And that's, kind of attitude. That, that was the sort of attitude and, and that's what made me so angry because I had learnt so much that, you know, it was not acceptable under any circumstances and so don't make excuses for yourself why it wasn't you and, and it was me instead. Like, there was no room for for those sort of comments. And you've completely uh, rehabilitated from drinking? I don't have any alcohol at all. It gives me great pride when I get pulled up at a booze bus <laughs> and they ask me, have you had a drink today, ma'am? And I say, I haven't had a drink for... Is. Yeah, nice. It's lovely. Nice. I bet. Yeah. I bet that puts a smile on your face. What would you say has been some of the biggest contributors to your change, to who you are today? I guess my own motivation to prove that I am a worthy citizen. And I still question that at times even now. Like, I still question that. 
but it was that motivation of saying, well, you know, the crime doesn't define me. I'm much better than that. And I'm going to help other people so that maybe they're not in the situation that I found myself in. In what ways do you help other people? Well, education was really important to me throughout my life. I'm now working as a teacher and I chose that because of the importance that I place on education in my life. And I'd like young people nowadays to, you know, if they can get a good education, well, you know, it just opens up so many more doors for their futures. So it's still that draw back to the helping professions, isn't it? That's really who you are, the it is. person who wants to help people. Help people. Yeah. But I couldn't help myself when I needed to most. Yeah, that's, that's powerful. What was that journey like for you to get your foot in the door? Was it as simple as finding someone willing or, you know, did you have a little bit of a fight on your hands there? Yeah, it was very difficult, Suze. I... Like I alluded to before, I, I decided that teaching was, was where I'd go. Um, so after I finished my uni um, masters, I then applied for, for my approval to teach um, and I got the approval, um, which basically just says what I am allowed to teach. So then the next move was to get my Department of Education approval um, and that didn't come so easily. Initially they rejected it on grounds of my character. I took great offence to that but it was what it was. So the path I pursued from there was I gained employment in a Catholic school away from my current town so I moved away Um, because I was an accredited teacher they were prepared to employ me I completely open about my crime and my um, time in jail they were aware of the whole story but they still employed me and during that time of employment there um, the fight was on to, to try and get Department of Education approval um, we enlisted a, a barrister to assist the case. Then it became quite apparent that the Department of Education had no guidelines on how to, to handle this type of situation. They were just running from from one spot to the other and making up the procedure on the run. As they went along. Yeah, there was no guidelines that we could find to, you know, what to base our appeal on or, or anything and time frames, there was nothing. And So the barrister put something into the department um, and then to try and get a response from them, it was delayed and delayed and we're not sure when it will be out and... When it finally came out, it was, no, we still decline to give you approval. So I took that fairly harshly. Uh, like a lot of things in my life, I took it personally, as though it was a real stab in the guts to me, mm. as though all the hard work that I had done and and everything that I had achieved, I thought was, you know, now really... Not worth a whole lot, <laughs> yeah. So that's when I sort of, you know, became a little bit more resourceful and I thought, okay, well, the straight legal proper procedure didn't work. I'm going elsewhere. So that's when I enlisted the help of some more powerful people that may have been able to help me. I initially spoke to my local state government representative um, he was quite open to hearing my case and he did as much as he could. So that's when I, I went even further um, to, to media and things were done then behind the scenes. 
and I was able to to get someone to actually help my case that had actually um, had a criminal history himself. Right. And he'd been given a a second chance, and so he was able to to help my case as well. So he was in a position to be able to affect a different outcome Mm. with the department. Yeah. Right. So it was really a matter of not accepting closed doors but looking for other ones to knock on Mm. and finding the ones that opened. I was pretty desperate. I was, yeah. I Desperate in that I had a case that I thought I was worthy of being given a chance and I wanted someone else out there to give me that chance Mm -hmm. you know I didn't want to be looked at as that criminal for a lifetime I wanted to to you know have a new life and I felt I was worthy of that if only someone had give me a chance so I just kept fighting the bullying me came out you know they just want to pigeonhole people and and yeah I I think you have to have a broader outlook and, and look at things in a more contextual way look at people as individuals and their whole individual journey Mm. so what what you did is not a reflection of who you are i don't think so Uh, what what would you say to employers to help them maybe alleviate that sort of concern or to encourage them to give um, somebody a second chance that they might be contemplating who has a criminal record I think one of the difficulties in this day and age is all the online recruitment that's done and we're getting back to we're ticking answers on sheets and we don't look beyond a single answer to a question. So if you have a criminal who is an ex-criminal who you know, quite um, honestly says that, yes, they do have a criminal conviction. Well, a lot of employers will just straight away toss them out. So I ask employers to start with is don't just toss those people out. Consider them on their merits, on their other merits, because they may well have learnt skills through their whole life that, you know, you you can't just learn in other ways. And they'll be beneficial to any um, place of employment to have them on board. But to take people, give people an opportunity at an individual level to, to prove themselves. In my um, own research with employers, that's one of the biggest things that helps employers is to have that face-to-face conversation with somebody who has the criminal record but they get to get a feel for the person they get to sort of have that discussion and see how they respond to things you know things that you can't put on a piece of paper Mm. Um, and that makes all the difference because they get to hear the story behind the record Um, and that makes a big difference to what judgment they then arrive at about that person yeah exactly and a lot of the types of positions that, that I'd been applying for um, or that I'm in a position to apply for are the so-called white-collared professional-type jobs and they're the ones that you don't just door-knock to, to get a job. You, you actually do have to apply online and, mm. you know, they don't get to see that person. Mm. There's a, a fairly big movement in the United States that's catching on quite widely over there now called ban the box and it's about banning getting rid of that box on an application form that requires you to disclose if you've got a criminal record or not so that people who do can at least get to the interview they can at least get to that face-to-face stage Mm. um i think that's got a lot of merit a lot of merit yeah putting you in the classroom now with your students how do you feel when you stand up and you know, because you've got you're quite a highly educated lady, and you've worked really hard and actually achieved a lot in your life, despite the challenges that you've had along the way. You've still achieved a lot. So, what's it like for you on a day to day basis to walk in that classroom and get to help people and 
help change other lives. It's probably a bit like our own parents said to us is that we don't appreciate how important school was. Um, I don't think kids nowadays appreciate how important school is, but I do try and reiterate that to them. I try to instill um, desire to learn because that's, I believe that's, we've just got to be open to learning, to learning new things, new ways to do things. Um, And if I can create that desire in a young person, well, then you're creating something to move on into the big world with. And in what ways do you draw on your experiences to help inform or, I suppose, influence your approach to teaching and educating? I guess one's being tolerant of, of differences because I do have that experience with such a diverse background of people. And I guess I, I cherish life a little bit more than what a lot of people do because of what I have been through. And and I think cherishing life so much, you, you try and encourage people to make the most out of it. Yep. Take it with all that you can. Grab it with everything you've got. You were saying that one of the most important things to you while you were serving your prison sentence is to see your dad and your family when you got out Um, and then you've mentioned a little bit um, before that you were really close to dad yeah Um, so was he alive when you got out of prison yeah I was really lucky Suze when I when I got out that my dad all my family my grandparents they were all still alive because he'd had the stroke before before I went all this in. happened. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And he was in a where he was he's in a nursing home. Okay. All right. So he's, he's being cared for. Yep. So Dad's still in a nursing home now. Several years after I was released, both my grandparents passed on, but they were well into their nineties when they wow. did. So I was able to have a few good years with them after I was released, which I was so grateful for. Dad's still in the nursing home. I have a very close relationship with him. I do whatever I can for my dad now. And the effect of the stroke hasn't been one that he doesn't know who you are? Like he knows? No, he knows completely who I am. Um, it's just really just immobilised him. So what was his response like when you saw him the first time after you come out of prison? He cried. Did he? Big, strong farmer, he cried. Yep. That must have been an incredible moment. It was. Yeah. It was. What sort of conversation? Did you have conversations about it with him or was it just leave it in the past? Leave it in the past. Move on. Yep. It's all in the past. It's just, you know, the now and the future is all that we talk about. There's nothing about my drinking, my crime, my time in jail. And you don't feel that he has any sort of disappointment or anger about that he's just still his little girl and he's yeah yeah I'm still his little girl yeah so Kate we were talking a little bit earlier and you you had mentioned that if you were given the opportunity to say something to your victim's family you would have liked that opportunity so what what would it be that you would love to say to them I don't really know where I would have started. I would have loved the opportunity just so that they could see that I was a person that was hurting as well from the accident. And I don't mean physically, I mean mentally as well. Um, I wanted them to know how extremely sorry I was that I'd caused them the damage and the changes to their lives that I had done. My relationship when I was growing up with my dad, I was really, really close to my dad and and I really wanted to, to let them know that the accident taking a father away from his daughter and the little girl not ever really remembering their father, 
that played on me and it still plays on me that there's a little girl that's grown up that didn't get to know her dad and I you know really wanted them to know how sorry I was about that and I know sorry doesn't seem to be enough but I just needed them to know that you know I wanted them to to be there um you know a better outcome if they had have been had it could have been so why did you agree to do this podcast says it took me by surprise the request and i didn't have to think about it for very long to say yeah i want to be part of it because if i can help someone that's been in a situation like myself if i can help make the transition from life on the inside to to reintegrating outside just a little bit less bumpy with a few less hurdles I'll think it was a good thing to have done Is there anything else you'd like to say? I guess I just like to and I guess this has probably opened up a lot of people's eyes already um, by knowing that it can happen to just a normal person a normal family whatever normal is um you know life can turn around so quickly don't ever think that that it won't turn around for you but always have faith that somewhere deep inside as much as you're hurting that you will be able to find the strength to pull yourself back out because with the right people around you and and just the strength from inside you you can pull yourself out and yeah it's tough but it's tough for everyone mm. um we've all got different journeys to to fight and to to venture on but you know this has been a tough one but give give people a chance to redeem themselves because there are a lot of worthy people out there that have just been on the wrong side of an event for whatever reason but that shouldn't define who they are Mm. or that shouldn't define their place in society and I think that's a really interesting or really important point that you make about you know the road to change is not uh, is not a solo journey it really requires other people to be part of that journey and you know um, whether that be friends and family that welcome you back into the fold mm. in the way they have or um, an employer giving you a chance um, or in whatever case that mm. is it's not just a solo journey that it does require other people yeah um, thank you so much for being so vulnerable to come and share a really hard story um, my pleasure i really appreciate it while kate was telling you her story she spoke about typical attitudes towards drink driving in rural areas you may be left wondering whether drink driving is worse in country areas and why that might be australian research consistently reports that drink driving occurs at a disproportionately high rate in rural areas compared to urban areas In a study using Queensland police data from over 35 million RBTs across an 11-year period from 2000 to 2011, the researchers found that drink driving in remote areas was detected at two and a half times the rate of the state average. The Centre for Accident Research and Road Safety Queensland report that drink driving is the number one contributing factor in approximately 30% of crash fatalities in Australia and that the risk of being involved in a crash doubles with a blood alcohol content that is just over the 0.05 limit. This risk increases to five times more likely with a blood alcohol content between 0.05 and 0.08 and up to 12 times more likely for drivers with a blood alcohol content of 0.08 to 0.12. Executive Director for the Centre for Road Safety in New South Wales, Bernard Carlin, says 85% of fatal crashes in rural areas are attributable to drink driving, whereas drink driving accounts for only 17% in major cities. So why is drink driving and its interception or deterrence a problem in rural areas? 
A report published by the Australian Institute of Criminology outlines a number of reasons. First, the availability of public transport is limited and the distance for many people to travel from home to a licensed venue is too far to walk. These two factors influence increased vehicle use. Second, locals in rural areas are effective in spreading the word about active RBT stops, which allows drivers to take alternative routes and avoid being pulled over. Third, RBT operations in rural areas are a costly exercise when weighed up against the amount of traffic and the limited police resources. And finally, police personnel in rural areas are typically well known to locals. Together, these factors impact on the effectiveness of RBT operations and influence a greater likelihood for drink drivers in rural areas to get behind the wheel. In the next episode of I Am Not My Crime... Some of the things that I was exposed to inside were crazy. The way that guys would make tattoo guns out of a motor that they pulled out of a CD Walkman... That blows my mind. That level of innovation. Corporates would pay big money to have that sort of innovation amongst their people. Thanks for listening to I Am Not My Crime from the University of Southern Queensland. If you have a moment, please subscribe, rate and review. This will help others to discover I Am Not My Crime. I'm Suzanne Reich. Thanks for listening. If this episode has brought up any issues and you need to talk to someone, you can contact Lifeline on 13 11 14 or Alcoholics Anonymous on 1300 222222. Are you curious about why people behave in criminal ways? Maybe you would enjoy a fascinating career in the criminal justice system or one of the many associated agencies, working with people who have committed crime or been a victim of crime. Why not get a head start with your studies in criminology and criminal justice here at the University of Southern Queensland? To find out more, go to usq.edu.au slash bella. That's B-E-L-A, then click on Law and Criminology.